Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Let me read in your hearing verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Let us hear God's word. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now as we consider this passage, I want to open with with a question. A question that I won't seek to answer until the end of the sermon. But the question is, is this, is the Great Commission... Or is evangelism and missions the primary task of the church? Is it or is it not? We certainly know that a great majority of evangelicals in our nation would say most definitely so. But should we? Is that the way we should understand this commandment? That it is the primary, the ultimate the most dominant task of the church. Now one thing might surprise you is this passage is the most referenced passage in all of the Westminster Standards. It's referenced more than any other passage within the standard. So it certainly is important, and it certainly is jam-packed with doctrinal and practical material. We see that, don't we? Matthew Henry says that here it's as an angel stirs up her nest and flutters over her young to excite them, so Christ stirs up his disciples to disperse themselves over all the world. Christ here is sending his disciples out. He's trained them, and now he's sending The twelve uniquely, but also obviously the seventy, and even the hundred and twenty and that will gather shortly thereafter and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. What I want us to consider in this text are, first, the motives for missions, secondly, the agent of missions, then thirdly, the extent of missions, and then fourth, and we'll spend most of our time there considering the primary tasks of missions as given to us by our Lord and Savior in this text. First, let's consider some motives that we find in this text. Clearly, there are many other motives for evangelism and church planting and missions in the Scriptures, 
Uh, so this is not an exhausted list of motives, but there are three, I believe, here that are very important for us to identify. The first one is that we glorify God in worship. That's a motive here. We've seen that in Psalm 96. We'll see it when we sing Psalm 67, that we that worship the true God ought to desire to see others in the nations worship the true God. Those that are worshiping the false gods of the nations, those that fear and reverence them, we want them to come under the sound of the gospel and worship. So witness is the fruit of our worship, but then witness leads to the worship of God by others. So glorifying God, worshiping, the disciples worshiped him. Did some doubt? Yes. Did they worship him without sin? Of course not. And neither will we or have we up to this point in this service. But they believed. And God, the, the Christ, the second person, the Godhead, calls them to this. So missions and evangelism is an overflow of worship. And then it's also worship is the fruit of Glorifying God in worship. Secondly, we have here clearly in verse 18b, the command. So that's a motive. Christ calls us to this. All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. All power, all authority. The one who speaks this is the one whom the Father has said in Psalm 2.6, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill in Zion. This is the messianic king. This is the one to whom all authority has been given. In heaven and in earth. In the seen world and in the unseen world. He reigns and he's reminding them he reigns right then and he remains and reigns right now. We're not waiting for Christ's reign. He reigns. He reigns. And so that ought to motivate us. The one that reigns has called his people to take his good news, his message to those who are in rebellion, those who are still following the usurper king. This is us as his people called to take a message of forgiveness and of restoration and reconciliation to come under the sound, to kiss the sun, which that kiss there in Psalm 2, a yes is an expression of affection, but even more than that, it's an expression of submission. So we are to testify of God's grace as individuals and as a corporate body because It's glorifying to God because it's the outflow of our worship of God because Christ has commanded us to. And thirdly, because he's promised to go with us. The end of verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. What a promise. You see, God's never more with his people than when they're carrying out this mandate. In its totality. John Trapp could say, when Jesus Christ says, I will be with you, you may add what you will 
to protect you, to direct you, to comfort you, to carry on the work of grace in you, and in the end, to crown you with immortality and glory. All this and much more is included in this promise. He's there to comfort us, encourage us, challenge us in this work, in this holistic work, as we'll see when we consider the tasks of missions. It was Jesus who said in the upper room in John 16, 7, it is expedient for me to go away. I got to go. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. I've got to go, so I will send him. And so Christ is still present with us by the Spirit that he and the Father have sent to us. Ought that not to motivate us as well as encourage us and challenge us to this task of missionary endeavor? So we've considered three motives for missions here in this text. As I said, they're not exhaustive. There are others. We could certainly turn to Matthew 22, 37 and following and find two more, right? Loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving our neighbors, ourselves. That's just two more. There are others. But here are three very prominent ones that are clear here on the text, aren't they? Next, let's consider briefly the agent of missions. Who does Jesus speak this commandment to? We're told in verse 16, it's the 11 disciples. But now... Interpretive question arises, does this mean this was just for the original apostles and doesn't apply to us today? Well, I think if we interpret scripture with scripture, we will immediately think of Ephesians 2.20, where we're reminded that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So these are representatives of the church, the leadership of the church at the time. And Matthew Poole says that having declared his power or his authority, here Christ delegates it. He's delegating it to them. Remember, children, in Matthew 16, 18, when the disciples were with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. Remember, Jesus asked them a question. Who do men say that I am? And you know Peter the big mouth, the guy that's always the first to speak, right? He always had a hard time not being the first to answer Jesus' questions, it appears, right? We, we all know people that speak more than others, right? Well, Peter was one of those guys that he liked to be the mouthpiece of the rest of the disciples. And he speaks he says, you're the son of God. And do you remember that? And then Jesus says to him, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He doesn't say, Peter, you're going to build my church. He doesn't even say that the apostles will build the church or Peter. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Remember, it's not much later in there in Matthew 16, 
that we're told that Jesus is going to give them the keys of the kingdom. Very clearly, he's alluding to the fact that he is going to delegate to them authority in the church. He's going to continue to build his church. They're not going to be building his church, but they're going to have the keys of the kingdom. He clearly alludes to this delegation that's coming. Some some see throughout Matthew that Matthew in the whole gospel is leading up to Matthew 28, to this very end. There's clearly a progression throughout this gospel to this. But also we're told that we're to carry out this to the end of the world, or literally the end of the age. Speaking of this New Testament epoch, all the way till the end, all the way till his return. That tells us clearly that this, is, this commandment is beyond just the apostles at the time. This is for the church throughout the New Testament age, the New Testament era. The church that's led by its leadership. As Christ shepherds his people through his under-shepherds and leads them, he leads them in this mission that he's told us to carry out, he's promised to always be with us. And so we see here, as we see throughout the rest of Scripture, and even in Acts 13 that we just read, that the church is the sending agent of missionaries or church planters. Parachurches should not be sending men who have never engaged in pastoral ministry in their own culture, cross-culturally, to plant churches and raise up men to plant, and to plant churches and shepherd people in other cultures. Like that's not Christ's method. His church produces churches. Not the non-church, not the parachurch. And when a parachurch seeks to carry out what are the prerogatives or the responsibilities or duties of the church, it is hindering the church. It's getting in the way. That's not to say that all parachurches are doing that. There are parachurches, ministries that understand what their role is, that it is a role of Christians scattered rather than Christians gathered, or things that Christians can be engaged in, publications, translation, all works that are supposed to be done. But here we see the agent of church planting and missions and church growth is the church itself. We see that in Acts 8 and 11 as some of believers are dispersed because of persecution. But when the church in Jerusalem hears with its corporate ear that something's going on down there in Antioch, they send Barnabas down. And he brings order and he calls Paul. They bring order to that. And then as that church And Antioch grows, I believe, to a presbytery by the time of Acts 13. They have five prophet teachers there. Whether those five were worshiping the Lord together in prayer or whether there was ruling elders gathered with them in a presbytery meeting, God at that point says, I'm going to send two of you out. And so the church here, we see at least in this early explanation of the mission of the church is the sending agent. Thirdly, 
just briefly, the extent of missions. Here Jesus says that the gospel is to go to all the nations or all the ethne. Does that sound familiar, children? Do you enjoy ethnic food? Have some of you had Liberian food? Do you enjoy that ethnic food? It's different. And sometimes you may taste something in ethnic food that's outside of your ethnicity that immediately you don't, oh, that's a little bit different. And then how enjoyable is it when you get to experience the broadness of God's beauty and the various taste buds that have never been activated like they have in different cultures. That's part of God's great plan, right? His, the complexity of the artistry of God's work in creation. He tells us to go to all the nations, whether we're comfortable going or not comfortable going. In Mark 16, 15, he says to all the world or the cosmos, Luke 24, uh, 47, in Luke's explanation of the Great Commission, it's among, among all the nations, take the gospel among all the nations, to the ethne. And yet, James could say as he's summarizing <coughs> Peter's testimony at the Council of Jerusalem says in Acts 15, 14 this. Simon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. I just think there's so much theology. To take out of that people. That's suggesting that we don't take the gospel and kind of mix it up in a stew with the traditional religions of the cultures that we bring the gospel to. We don't leave people as Liberian Christians and Asian Christians and Rhode Island Christians, New England Christians. God's taking out a people, a separate nation from all the nations, from the 193 nations of this world. He's drawing out people to another nation. One nation, one people, the visible church of God throughout the world. That's what God was doing in the work of Apostle Peter. As James summarizes it at the Council of Jerusalem, and so he continues to do till he returns. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, could say, The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It's a command to be obeyed. Not an option. It's a command. It's non-negotiable. There's some things a church can choose to get involved in or not. But this is not one of those. So we've seen the motives of missions, the agent of missions, the extent of missions. Let's consider now, fourthly, lastly, the primary tasks of missions. The primary tasks and I would argue they are three. <clears throat> I believe here Jesus says that we as God's people are to seek to bring men into a right relationship with the triune God. We're to seek to bring them into a right relationship with the church of God. And we're to seek to bring them into a right relationship with the word of God. 
Get that? Three prongs of the Great Commission. I would argue that any church that seeks to carry out only one of those prongs or maybe two of those elements and fails at the third is not carrying out the Great Commission. The Great Commission is all three of these prongs, three of these elements. They come together, but we seek to divide them as we seek to explain things, right? But they're interconnected. Let's consider the first, seeking to bring men into a right relationship (coughs) with the triune God. Here Jesus says we're to teach all nations or all ethne. This word is the word that we get the word disciple from. So it's a verbal form of the noun for disciple, for a student or a learner. So we're to make disciples. Well, can we make disciples? Of course not. We can't cause a leopard to change its skin. We can't take someone who is loving error and sin to come to love truth and righteousness. But we are to seek by God's grace to see leopards change their spots. Our goal is to see through God, God is pleased to use weak vessels in a Inaccurately at times preaching the gospel, but preaching the gospel nonetheless to save sinners. That's still his method. And we're also to baptize them into the name singular of the three persons of the Godhead. Having embraced Christ Jesus, we're to call them to come and embrace him in a public profession. Having believed in their heart, They're to make profession publicly, identifying themselves with the three persons of the Godhead. You see, the Christian faith is pervasively or predominantly Trinitarian. Christian worship is Trinitarian. We come to the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, Christian salvation is Trinitarian. Just particularly consider Romans eleven thirty six and following. And guess what? We shouldn't be surprised that Christian baptism and missions here are also Trinitarian. So we're to seek to bring men into a right relationship with God first. Secondly, we're to seek to bring men into a right relationship with the church of God. Baptism represents a number of things. Right, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, the effusion of the Holy Spirit, the identification of the person baptized with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it also represents inclusion in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that church, we see, it has a structure of leadership. The chief shepherd was saddened, we're told, in Matthew 9, 35 and following, when he saw all the sheep without a shepherd. Here the chief shepherd is amongst them, and he's still affected emotionally for the fact that they don't have under-shepherds. And he calls his disciples, and I'm using the small d now, not just the apostles, but all those that are gathered, to pray that the Lord might raise up more laborers, more shepherds to shepherd 
those lost sheep. Those of the fold that have already been won and those that are still outside the fold that are yet to be found. I love Martin Bucer's work on the care of the soul and shepherding because one of the responsibilities for the minister or for the elder, which quite a few books seem to miss, is the evangelistic aspect, that function. To preach to the sheep that are not yet come under the sound of the gospel. Those that God has ordained to salvation, but they still have not come to salvation yet. We're to preach the gospel in that way. We're to take the magnet of the gospel amongst the filings, metallic and not metallic, and we don't know which ones are going to come. But praise be to God, they do. And Mark says some come, and he also says some don't. We can't forget that. Because that's always a sad case when you preach the gospel and when, you, or when you're in the pew and you see it preached clearly. And you know those amongst the congregation, some in your own family, who don't see it. They miss it. They miss the beauty of Christ presented to them. The beauty of Christ you've seen presented to you. And you say, why are they still dead as a doornail? But that's God's method, nonetheless. So it assumes this leadership role. And we see like in Acts 2.42, right at the end of Pentecost, we're told, then the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Right? The one who said, I will build my church, Luke says, he's adding to the church. Peter's the one that preached, but it's... And throughout the book of Acts, we see Luke continuing to have these little progress reports through this book. The church, he says this, and he says sometimes just the word is growing. The word's growing. What's that mean? It means there are more people coming under the sound of the gospel. The quantity of the church is growing, but also the quality of the church is growing. More people that have come under the sound of the gospel are coming more under the sound of the gospel. The gospel is beginning to affect areas of their lives that it hasn't up till that point. Don't we all find that? Still, if you don't find that today in your own life, I want to encourage you to have dealings with the Lord. Because he's promised to continue the work that he's begun. Are there ups and downs? Yes. Are there periods when we feel like we're moving away? Things are getting chillier in our soul? But oh, that's a wonderful time to say, what's going on? What's going on with my own internal thermostat? Am I departing from the Lord? Am I departing from where he's promised to meet me in his house amongst his people? You know, Martin Luther said when he, when he was having issues of soul, he said he went first to fellowship with God's people. He was a man of prayer, but he said he went first to fellowship and then to prayer. I'm not saying that's what we should always do. Sometimes we should go to prayer and then fellowship. But either is okay when we find our soul 
cold. And we're moving away from the warm coals of God's word, spiritually discerned, as well as fellowship with God's people. So we've seen two prongs. Let's think of the third. The third is seeking to bring men into a right relationship with the word of God. The church is called to seek to bring men into a right... And when I say men, I'm speaking of women as well. You understand I'm using the generic men, not males. Men and children, right, and young people. We're to seek to bring them into a right relationship with the triune God, into a right relationship with the church of Christ, and with the word of God. Here we're told that we're not only to seek to evangelistically preach and incorporate people into the church, but we're also to teach them to observe all things whatsoever, Christ says, he's commanded. All things. What do the scriptures principally teach, children? You know the answer? What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man? Right? How we're to think and how we're to behave. Jesus says the church is to teach that whole counsel of God. To the head, to the heart, to the hands. We're to teach what God has us to learn about. Who are to lead God's people? How are God's people to worship? How are God's people to interact and fellowship and commune with one another? Not just how we're to commune with God vertically, but how we're to commune with one another horizontally. Do we know how to cover over a multitude of sins? You think that's important to the unity of a body of church? But you think it's important to know how and when you might need to approach a brother or sister when they have sinned against you? And how to do that with humility? How to receive it with humility? But too often we focus on that. We forget, how about covering the multitude of sins? The scriptures teach us about how we're to govern ourselves organizationally, but also how we're to interact with one another in mercy and in grace, in humility and patience, long-suffering. Paul continues in his epistles to tell us to put these things on, doesn't he? The fruit of the Spirit demonstrated in our relationships with one another. And also, God's Word tells us how to witness, how to engage in evangelism through our lives, but not our lives only, with our lips, as individuals, as families, as corporate bodies. We're to teach the whole council, and he says, teach the whole council to observe. Now, this word in the original is the word tetro. It's actually a military term. And it clearly means to observe, but I would contend it means even more than to observe. It actually means to guard, to protect. So it means teach to observe, but also to understand and even to remind the church. You see, sometimes the church, like ourselves, we may carry out certain duties because we've seen it in the word of God. But if our, those that are called to proclaim the word of God to us never mention that teaching again, it'll fall out of practice. Just let me give you one example. 
Go look at some black and white pictures of families leaving the church building of churches in 1960. Do you think you'll see many women without a hat on, whether it's a Methodist church or an Episcopal church or a liberal Presbyterian church or a Baptist church? No, you won't. You just won't. Because it was taught. But then guess what? It wasn't taught for a long, long time. It was never mentioned. And people forgot why they were doing things. And we forget why we do things. And we stop doing them once we forget. So we're to guard the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. We guard it by proclaiming it and practicing it. So... How did the apostles carry this out? We clearly see that they carried it out by evangelistic preaching. We clearly see that upon profession of faith, adults were baptized, their children were baptized, and then their children were trained in the covenant. But how did they carry out this whole council teaching? Whole men teaching the whole council to whole people. How did that happen? Well, it happened in local congregations as Paul and Barnabas and apparently then Barnabas and Mark. After Paul and Barnabas split, there's, and, we, and all the other apostles, right, are out there in different places. They're preaching, but they're also assisting the church in the nomination and training and election and ordination of ruling elders and of teaching elders, which wouldn't include obviously some kind of ministerial, more formal, vocational, educational training for teaching elders or pastors, ministers of the gospel, right, who serve in a ruling function but have functions beyond ruling function in the church. (coughs) And we clearly see from Acts 6 that occasionally churches, and I would contend in Acts 6 we don't have a local congregation in Jerusalem. We have a multitude of local congregations that are a church singular, a presbytery, or maybe even a synod. There may be several presbyteries. And they waited a little bit long, but eventually they recognized that the apostles and elders couldn't handle all the temporal, all the spiritual requirements upon them and care, as well as all the temporal. And so under the direction of the Spirit, They set up the first diaconate. I believe clearly in Acts 6, even though there are reformed men today that want to try to deny that that's the origin of the ruling eldership. It's hard to believe, but it seems so clear because the verb diakonos is there just over and over. They're clearly deaconing the tables. That's what the leaders of churches are called to do. They're called to establish presbyteries, networks of local churches and synods. They're called to assist those new churches in relating to one another and actually guiding the churches gathered in their activities as churches scattered to help explain the principles that need to apply if if Christians want to help out diaconally to people that are outside the church. How do they do that? How do they help out... in development, in clean water projects in Africa or in hospital and medical places around the world? How do they do that and do it consistent with the gospel? 
And then also in Romans 15, I believe we see the last task, the Apostle Paul telling us in the letter of Romans that he's basically said his work's done in the previous regions that he's preached. Now, was the gospel work done there? No, Paul still sent people there. They still had indigenous ministers and ruling elders serving the churches there. Those churches were still growing, but Paul was done there as a pioneer missionary. He's going to go to Spain. He says, you're going to help me. I'm going to come visit you, and then I'm expecting you, Presbytery synods of Rome in that area, want you to help me financially to get over to Spain so I can take the gospel to a whole other place. And that's why the PRC is committed in any of our mission works to, never, to not ultimately desire to stay in a, in a foreign land. The goal is to work ourselves out of a job. It's to allow the indigenous people to take over and then us to be brothers in Christ and exhort and encourage one another and strengthen one another. And as I've thought about these different aspects, these three general elements of missions, which I've now divided into nine because I've told you there's six under this third prong. They're not really steps, like you do one and then you move to the next. No, what you do is kind of like the guy spinning the plates. A man's called to go out and preach to an area he's not. He's preaching evangelistically. And when some people come, now he's got to start incorporating them in the church. They have to come understand the fundamentals. He's got to teach the milk of the word. Right? He gets that going. Then he starts teaching the whole council. And then, he's got to, then, then there's more people coming. He's got to help get ruling elders in place. He's got to start setting up ministerial training for ministers and pastors. Oh, now it's time for deacons. Things are getting big. And there's poor amongst us. He's, but he's always going back and forth. He doesn't stop evangelistically preaching because he's, or, he's training elders on Thursday nights or prospective elders. He's still evangelistically preaching. He's still seeing people one. He's incorporating them into the church, feeding milk, but he's also feeding milk, meat. Now, oh, now it's time for presbyteries. There's three local congregations. They're going to need help. I've got to help them with that. Get that plate spinning. Back to this one. Right? I'm getting a little African on you, sorry. <laughs> All the way out to the ninth. Now I'm turning over. Now I can ignore the other eight and start back at a new set of nine. Now I'm planting somewhere else. Now I'm evangelistically preaching in a whole nother context. Lord, Lord willing, we'll be somewhere else before we ever get out of Liberia. But when we get out of Liberia, I hope we'll go somewhere else. It most likely won't be with me, but I hope we as a denomination, as a presbytery, will choose to engage in some other. We'll hear some other Macedonian call like we heard before. We'll go and help. And remember, when Paul had a vision, we're not going to get a vision like that. That's not going to be the kind of Macedonian call we ever get. But we might get a letter or an email, right? When we do, and they say, help us, how did Paul understand that? It says he went and preached the gospel there. It doesn't say he generated a, a fund and then carried some money over there, or tra- bought some Bitcoin and transferred it over there. They needed help. He knew what was the best help. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of saving mercy 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in closing, is missions the primary task of the church? Only if you understand it in this holistic perspective that I have presented could you say that missions is the primary task. Most in evangelicalism today narrow missions to basically evangelistic preaching. Maybe incorporation in the church, but do not take on the rest of those roles. In that sense, it is not the primary function of the church. Professor Murray, who was influential in the formation of our presbytery, wrote an excellent article called Christian Missions. It's in his Collected Writings, Volume 1, where I think he clearly explains that the function of worship and discipleship and fellowship and leadership are equivalent functions of the church. And if we think we can do missions without carrying out those functions, ultimately we're not going to produce healthy churches. We'll be a diseased church producing diseased children. So we've got to promote holistic, healthy congregations who are producing healthy children, who mature themselves and then produce healthy children. May that be, under the blessing of God, what we see in our day in our own congregations and elsewhere. And what I would remind you, as I mentioned at breakfast to Douglas and his wife, sometimes we think that the extension of the church is the difficult task. And the maintenance of the church that's been established is a little bit easier. Okay, And when we're in a church where we're just trying to maintain, it's easier to think it's harder over there. But in a world of God's providence where there are wheels within wheels... And when we are in congregations in a post-Christian culture, the wheel of our culture is going counter the wheel of progress in the church. So there is a lot of effort that's got to be taken in our congregations throughout North America and England. In the West, Western civilization, just maintaining what the Lord has granted us is tough business, and it is the work of missions. Get that? It is the, this is the work of missions right here. Some guy like me that goes over and is a little cramped in a little seat, you know, for about 16 hours in a plane and gets off and gets a little hot and sweaty for a few days, you know, and, you know, maybe the watering closet or the toilet places aren't ideal, you know, but I'm, I'm ministering in a culture where generally the culture is pretty sympathetic to the gospel. So with those, they're minor little inconveniences. They're minor. Because in general, that culture is open to the gospel. So don't, don't always think that somebody in a foreign land's got it hard. Your ministers and elders in our local congregations have a hard work too. Please don't forget that. Please don't forget that. Continue to pray that the Lord would maintain and support those that rule over you and shepherd you. 
and pray that the Lord might raise up others to the harvest in our own churches and in churches that we have close fellowship with. Let us pray. Please rise for prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou hast been pleased to meet us. We thank Thee for Thy holy word. We pray that Thou wouldst be pleased by Thy Spirit to write it upon our hearts, that we might lay it upon our hearts, that we might practice it in our lives, that Thou wouldst be glorified, that we would be edified, and that Thy church would flourish and grow. May that be true, O Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.